Very good morning, family. Today is uh, the fourth part of our sermon series on the way of salvation. And in fact, today's sermon really is the crown jewel of uh, what it means to be a Methodist. Uh, the emphasis that we bring to the body of Christ worldwide. John Wesley called this uh, doctrine on perfection, Christian perfection, the grand depositum that God has lodged with the people called Methodists. So if there's any distinctive about us as Methodists, this is really our crown jewel. What we offer as a refresher, as a reminder to the body of Christ that God calls us towards perfection. So today, as I've said, uh, it's the fourth part of the sermon series. In the first sermon, just a quick recap here, we learned that the great privilege of those born of God is that it is possible not to commit conscious sin. So those who are born of God actually have the ability no longer to sin consciously. Second sermon, we learn what it means to be born of God, that those born of God experience a vast inward change that is evident to the people around them. And without this new birth, we can never move towards salvation, holiness or happiness. It is the very first step on this way of salvation. It's the new birth. Everybody needs to have a new birth experience. And thirdly, in the third sermon preached by Pastor Colin, we learn what is that one thing most needful, which is to recover the image of God, the entire renovation of our fallen human nature. So to summarize all that we have covered so far, in short, we were born in sin, and sin unfortunately only leads to death. And so all of us need to be born again because being born again frees us from sin. But that is not the end of salvation. To be born again is only the first step to grow in holiness, to recover the full image of God. That is our end goal, to become like Jesus fully. So it is ridiculous in Wesley's mind for all of us simply to say the sinner's prayer and expect to go to heaven. If Wesley was alive in our day-to-day, I think he'll be scolding a lot of uh, the evangelicals. How can you just preach salvation just by saying a sinner's prayer? That's wrong. right? So we must move on to perfection as Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 exhorts us. And we must continually work out our salvation as we're here next week. But today we examine what this idea of perfection means and why we must move on to a perfection. Before we pray, let's read the scripture. Therefore, let us go on toward perfection leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ, not laying again the foundation, repentance from dead works and faith toward God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Basically, these are the basic elementary foundations. If you don't even know this from the author of Hebrews' point of view, these are foundational stuff. And we will do this if God permits. Verse 4, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been uh, once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away since on their own they are crucifying again the Son of God and are holding Him up to contempt. This is the Word of God. Let us pray. Lord, today's word is a very serious message. We pray that, Lord, you help us to take it seriously because, God, you are a holy God. So help us to become a holy people, pure and blameless in your sight. Help us to really to hear the word of God today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So why must we be perfected? The author of Hebrews actually makes it very clear. Therefore, let us go on to toward perfection. Right? It is really the standard biblical expectation of the early church. Um, a couple of slides down already. I've done the recap earlier. Uh, just in case some of you are taking notes, uh, this is a sermon preached by John Wesley, 1784. Next slide. So these are, uh, can move on. 
Yeah, right. So why must we be perfected? It is really the standard biblical expectation for everyone in the early church to go on to perfection. So John Wesley wasn't preaching a new concept. It is the expectation of every Christian. Let me give you a very simple illustration. You see here in the picture, a newborn baby, right? Very cute. Every newborn baby, cute, come out. We love them. But what if the newborn baby looks like this after six months? Something is wrong, right? We'll say, hey, the baby is not growing. Or worse, what do you think the baby looks like this after six years? Still looking the same way. Obviously, we know something is definitely wrong. The baby is not growing, right? So you and I, we have this natural expectation for babies to grow. It is the natural state of affairs, and if the baby isn't growing, something is wrong. How can it be then, when we become Christians, when we are born again, we have no expectation for us to grow as Christians? Something is wrong if we are the same people 10, 20 years after we become Christians, and we still are the same old self. Something is wrong. Maybe we are not truly born again. Then we need to reconsider that. Now you see, a baby doesn't need to perform, you know, or to go through discipleship course or anything, do any works, to grow. It simply eats, feeds, poops, and grows. That's what a baby does. Nothing else but feeding himself, pooping, and then just growing is natural. In the same way, really, as Christians, as long as we feed on the Word of God, as we pray, we breathe in the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the Spirit of God will cleanse us, we will release all this dirt and filth inside of us, and we will naturally grow as Christians. That should be our normal expectation. So this has nothing to do with works by performance. We're not trying to impress God by reading the Word of God. It's not trying to impress God, really. It is feeding our soul, the Spirit of God, inside of us. A, a baby physically needs food. As Christians born again, we need that spiritual food. Understand? Simple illustration. Anything that is truly alive will grow. Full stop. If a Christian is truly alive, the Christian must be growing. So if any of you still think that salvation is just saying the sinner's prayer, getting a ticket to heaven, think again. Just as we naturally expect human babies to grow, we should expect to grow ourselves as born-again Christians. Secondly, and more importantly, the way the author of Hebrew puts it, if we do not go on to perfection, then we are in danger of remaining stagnant in our faith. And if we are stagnant in our faith, then the worst thing might happen, which is falling away. Here the author of Hebrews warns us very strictly, for Christians who have once tasted of the goodness of God, if they fall away, it is virtually impossible to restore them unto repentance. Do you hear that? This is a very serious message. And we should think this very seriously when we share the gospel with people. We don't just tell them a cheap gospel that they can come into the, into the kingdom of God without telling them the full implications. Because if they have tasted of the goodness of God and have fallen away, it is worse for them. This is a very serious message. If we are not moving forward in our faith, if we are not moving toward perfection, then we are moving backwards. There is no neutral ground in Christianity. Someone once said that Christianity is like swimming against the tide. The moment you stop swimming, you are being swept backwards. Or to use an analogy, there is no neutral gear in Christianity. A Christian is basically like a car on a slope. If you are not moving forward, if you are in neutral gear, then you are moving backwards. So a Christian, like Christian's life means we must continually press on toward perfection. Not to impress God, but that should be the natural state of affairs. Just as a baby naturally grows, we should all be growing as Christians. In fact, I like the New King James Version. They have a subtitle for passages. And the subtitle for this passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, says, The peril of not progressing. 
the peril of not progressing. If we don't progress as Christians, then we are in danger of falling away. And if you fall away, it's harder for you, impossible, the Bible says, for you to come back unto repentance. So there is no middle ground in Christianity. Either we are moving up or we are down. There is no neutral ground. There is no middle ground. So, like I said, I need to understand the severity of today's message and grasp the full implications of what I'm saying. If we are not moving toward perfection, then we are in danger of falling away. That's how serious it is. So that's uh, the book of Hebrews, to just to get us off started. Why must we be perfected? Secondly, let's move on to understand what perfection means. Now, don't be intimidated by this word perfection. The original Greek word, uh, it's teleos. Pastor Melvin preached on this before, but let me remind us, which means simply to, to be complete, perfect, or mature. They have all these nuances. For Wesley, Christian perfection, or if you think the word perfection is just too big a word, Christian maturity has the following characteristics. John Wesley defines what perfection isn't and what it is. And so now I'll cover his sermon here. How does a fully mature or perfect Christian look like? First of all, Wesley says, perfection doesn't mean that we become like angels or become like Adam before the fall. Perfection doesn't mean that we have perfect knowledge or unlimited knowledge or knowing everything because only God knows everything. So we will continue to be ignorant of many things. All right? So this is what perfection doesn't look like. Just because someone has experienced the perfect love of God doesn't mean that they will have known everything. No, okay? Secondly, perfection doesn't mean that we will never ever make mistakes in our lives arising from misdirected emotions or wrong judgments. In fact, for John Wesley, we can even continue to make mistakes in interpreting the Bible, even as we have experienced Christian perfection. Thirdly, perfection also doesn't mean that we have no more sicknesses or infirmities because we continue to live in this corruptible body so that's the key distinction we need to make here. And finally, Wesley says, perfection doesn't mean that we are free from temptations. Why? Because Jesus was perfect, and yet he was tempted. Remember, 40 days in the wilderness? So being perfect doesn't mean that you have no temptations. Because temptation is not a result of us, it's a result of the devil and his minions. So they'll always be at work, so there'll always be temptations. But our role is to stand up against those temptations. So temptations... Doesn't, uh, we, just because we are tempted doesn't mean we are... Sorry, just because we are perfected doesn't mean that we are free from temptations. Alright, so make it clear here. Perfection doesn't mean all this. Alright? So what does a, Christian, a mature or perfect Christian really looks like? For John Wesley, he says, essentially, that person is like Jesus. <laughs> Duh, obviously. Alright? But uh, he actually breaks it down into several aspects of what it means to have completely renewed in the image of God to be like Jesus. Number one, this person loves God completely with all his heart or her heart, soul, mind and strength. Someone who loves God completely. right? Nothing new, right? Anything new about this doctrine? No. But uh, just illustrate here. Some years ago, I wanted to very much to hear a particular preacher and I was trying to justify to my wife to give me time off to listen to this person. You know, uh, with family, uh, young children and stuff like that, uh, I need to be at home and stuff. So this is your work hours. But, so I said to my wife, uh, you know, this preacher really loves God. This man really loves Jesus. I really want to hear him. What she said next uh, shocked me. You know what she said? You want to guess what she said? She said, but you, but you really love Jesus too. Why should you go and hear him? I mean, 
Okay, I mean, you know, wives can be uh, one of the most honest people on planet Earth to their husbands, right? All wives know this. You know, husbands, we like to think very great of ourselves, but oftentimes it's the wives that bring us down to Earth, give us a reality check and say, hey, hey hello, this is what you should be doing, or something like that. So for my wife to actually say that you really love Jesus too, that's the best compliment I can ever receive in my whole life. Really. For my wife to say you really love Jesus too, that's very important to me. Now, I'm not trying to boast here. I don't think personally I love Jesus with all my heart. I wouldn't say that about myself. So for my wife to say that about me, I think that's a real compliment. What I'm trying to say here is that our love for God ought to be evident to the people around us, especially our family members. Can your family members say of you that you love God? Can your parents say of you, wow, this person is a changed person because they have come to a relationship with Jesus, has become a Christian, this person really loves God. Can our spouse say the same thing of us? And can our children look up to us and say, our parents really love God. They're not fake. They really love Jesus. That is the most important, I think, litmus test of whether we love Jesus. Not whether the pastor knows whether you're in church or not, whether the cell group thinks you're holy or not. That's, all these are secondary, if you ask me. It's the family front that will determine whether we really love Jesus or not. All right? Secondly, one loves neighbor, one love, one who is like Jesus would love one's neighbor as yourself. Naturally, one who fulfills the greatest commandment will fulfill the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. The following is a real-life testimony from a fellow Methodist pastor. This pastor loves to greet cleaners at coffee shops, hawker centers, and you know, one day she was just doing her usual greeting. Hi, how are you? How are you doing? The cleaner replied, are you a Christian? Yes, the pastor replied without saying that she's a pastor. Then what the cleaner said next surprised her. You know, only the Christians ask and care about the cleaners. Now, this is a good testimony. I think a bit exaggerated. Like I'm sure other people also ask about them. But it's a good statement, right? For Christians to make a difference in our society that people say, hey, the Christians are different. This is a good example of how a mature Christian look like, looks like. Now, to be fair here, I'm not asking for all of us to be extroverts, you know, greeting everybody, everyone, wherever we go. Uh, I'm a pastor, but I don't greet the cleaners like my fellow colleague does here. With, you know, she's more extroverted. I'm more shy, believe it or not. So, uh, she does it her way, but I'm not asking for all of us to do that. My, my point is that the label Christian is something that people should put on us, not what we put on ourselves. Other people, not just our family now, our other people in society, our colleagues, other people should be able to say, hey, this person loves other people and call us then Christians. Number three, the third characteristic of someone who is perfect or mature is someone who has the mind of Christ of which John Wesley says the chief characteristic, if you have the mind of Christ, there are many aspects of it, but the chief characteristic is humility. I stand by this quote, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less often. There's a difference here. Eh? It's not thinking less of yourself, thinking I'm lousy and stuff like that. That's not humility, that's false humility because you're still thinking of yourself. But thinking, true humility is thinking of yourself less because you're thinking about other people's needs and interests. No longer concerned with your personal agenda, but with the agenda and the interests and concerns of others. The truly humble person does not think that there is any job too lowly to be done, does not seek recognition when a job is done, because they just want to bless others. 
the truly humble person, if God so exalts or promotes him or her, is so comfortable also to just walk away from their position because they know that God is the one who has placed them there. Ultimately, it's up to God to decide. And the humble person, of course, is also willing to rough it out. Whether to be exalted or to be put low, doesn't matter. That is why the Wesleyan Covenant mentions this. Whether God wants to raise me up or put me down, it doesn't matter because I'm fully submitted to the will of God. I remember a VCF senior, a Varsity Christian Fellowship senior in university. There was such a gentle and humble spirit about the man. He always spoke respectfully, thought the best of others. He was willing to do the menial tasks without ever being prompted or, or recognized. That's humility. Can people say that we have the mind of Christ, that humility? Other aspects of uh, the mind of Christ include things like whatever is holy, lovely, pure, good. All these are included in the mind of Christ. And for Wesley, indeed, the mature Christian is one who is free from evil thoughts and bad emotions. Of course, emotions are technically neutral, but they are also negative expressions of emotions. So if Jesus was free from these evil thoughts, so too Christians should be. Indeed, how can evil thoughts proceed out of the heart of Jesus? Impossible, right? Because God's heart is always good. So if a man's heart is no longer evil, then evil thoughts can never proceed out of it. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ. Fourthly, Wesley says, one who is perfect, mature, has the undivided fruit of the Spirit. Wesley says the fruit of the Spirit is, we know, uh, nine aspects of the fruit. It is one fruit, not nine fruits of the Spirit. That's a side point here. But one fruit, nine different aspects of it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, fidelity, or what we use in our translations, faithfulness, meekness, or kindness temperance or self-control. So he says, what a wonderful glorious constellation of graces is here. Now suppose all these to be knit together in one, to be united together in the soul of a believer. This is Christian perfection. To have the undivided fruit of the Spirit. Right? Number five, <clears throat> Wesley says, the one who is perfected is one who is holy and blameless. He goes on to quote several biblical passages, putting on the new man, created after God in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4, 24. 1 Peter 1, 15, As God has called you, is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. So the person has clean lips, speaks well of other people, watches his or her tongue. May God himself, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when these words were written, you know, people were not thinking to themselves, oh, let me get to heaven and then be, I'll be pure and blameless. No. It really meant for the believers living on earth, like us now, that we must strive to be pure and blameless, body, spirit, and soul. All three aspects be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's the right expectation to have. Not to wait until heaven, you know, to be holy. No. The expectation is to be holy now, to be blameless now. So family, listen up. What John Wesley preached, what I'm preaching to you today, is nothing new. It's all in the scripture. We have neglected to hear the word of God as it is really stated, or we have adjusted our expectation according to our realities rather than adjusting our realities to match the word of God's expectation. So there is no half past six or half big expectation of holiness in scripture. God expects us to be a holy people. The expectation for true holiness is to be blameless. Right? That's our, that should be our expectation. Listen to Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28-29. to 29. 
Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature. The Greek word there is theleos, same word, perfect in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ works so powerfully in me. My job as a pastor, like Apostle Paul, is to present everyone fully mature, holy and blameless in Christ. If you think your job is tough, consider mine. <laughs> to present everyone, you know, fully mature and perfect in Christ. That is why sometimes you when know, I work with the young people, uh, especially, I scold them. I tell them the truth because I want them to grow and change. and Because I love them, I want to present them holy and blameless. And of course, not to, you know, uh, never mind. So my point is, it's not an easy job. It's not an easy job, right? So if you think your job is tough, come and join my profession. <laughs> my job really is to prepare a holy bride. To prepare a holy bride for Jesus when he returns. To prepare a holy people, pure and blameless. Now, in case some of you are wondering, what's the difference between righteousness and holiness? Here's the distinction. Righteousness or justification is what God does for us. Jesus has done everything on the cross. We are accepted as children of God because of what Jesus has done. We are no longer enemies of God. We have now become children of God, adopted as sons and daughters of God because of what God has done for us. This is righteousness. We do nothing to earn it. The second part is holiness or sanctification. It is what God does in us. But again, actually, it's no work of our, ours. It is purely by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God. God, work, God works in us. So that's the difference. We can be righteous without being holy. As children of God, we are all technically righteous. But doesn't mean that we are holy. And we need to become holy the way Jesus is holy. Wesley says in another sermon dealing with this same subject, he preached many times on this subject of Christian perfection because he felt that this was really the message that God gave the Methodists and many people did not really agree with it and yet many opponents. So he preached this message in various forms. In another sermon of this same topic, Wesley says, Christian perfection is really only another term for holiness. They are two names for the same thing. According to the scripture, everyone that is holy is perfect. However, it must be observed that there is no absolute perfection on earth. There is always the necessity of perfection in degrees. There is no perfection which does not admit the need of continual increase. No matter how much a man has attained or in what degree he is perfect, he still needs to grow in grace. He needs a daily advancement in the knowledge and love of God, his Savior. In other words, Wesley is saying, even for those of us who think that we are mature in Christ, you can still grow in Christian perfection and spiritual maturity. Remember, like I said at the start, there is never ever a neutral gear. The moment we think that we have made it, that's when you actually backslide. So we can experience Christian perfection, but continue to grow in Christian perfection and maturity even more. Like a man can be mature, right? But can be even more mature. It's the same. That's the same expectation we should have as Christians. Always pressing forward toward even greater perfection or maturity. Now, as I mentioned to you, Wesley faced several objections when he came to this preaching this doctrine of Christian perfection. The greatest objection was, can we be saved from this, from sin while we are in these bodies? What do you think? Can we be saved from sin while in these bodies? Yes or no? Yes? Yes, very good. You are better than me because I, I think most people instinctively think no. <laughs> right? 
But Wesley would say that's not true. First of all, he quotes several biblical promises in his script in the sermon. Psalm 30 verse 8, He shall redeem Israel from all his sins. So is it some sins or all sins? Obviously the scripture says all sins. Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save completely, or the King James Version, to the uttermost, those who come to God through Him. So it's not just partial salvation, but a full salvation to those who come to God through Him, because God, Jesus always leads to intercede for us. And Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 37, I won't read it to us, but the point is, God is going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. So is this true or not? Does God give us a new heart and a new spirit? Or does He give us half a heart and half a spirit? No, it is a completely new heart and a new spirit. Why should we then have any expectation that we are still like our old selves? right? So if it is by the work of God, then it is possible to follow God's laws by the power of God. And last but not least, uh, Wesley quoted the promise given to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the prophecy about Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verses 73 to 75. The whole point of Jesus coming, the east, verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Jesus came to destroy sin once and for all, not just that moment on the cross, but not that moment that we just receive Christ born again, but for our entire lives, all our days. This scripture passage is obviously doesn't just talk about our time in heaven, but all our days on earth. So why should we expect only to be holy after we die? Something is wrong. We should expect holiness here on earth. People continue to protest and say, this is impossible. How can we be perfect on earth? And John Wesley says, yes, it's impossible with men. With human effort, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. Again, listen to what John Wesley has to say about this idea of sinful body. He says, no body, physical body, or matter of any kind can be sinful. Spirits alone or only are capable of sin. Tell me, please, he says, what part of the body should sin lodge in? Think about it. Huh? Can sin lodge in the skin or in the muscles or in the nerves or the veins or the arteries? Or is it in the bones or in the hair or the nails? Tell me where is sin lodging in our physical body? We cannot ever identify it, right? But only the soul can be the seat of sin. And so when the Apostle Paul says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, it does not refer to the physical body. Instead, it refers to our fleshly desire, our minds that have not fully been renewed according to the Word of God. In fact, the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter, there are people who please God in the flesh, Abel, Enoch, Abraham, and a whole cloud of witnesses in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. They actually please God in the body, in the physical flesh. So it's wrong to think that we cannot please God on earth. John Wesley, that's John Wesley's point. So the sinful flesh does not refer to this physical body, but our attitudes, our old mind, old attitudes, old thinking. The body really is neutral, only an agent. So don't blame your body when you sin. It's your desire. The book of James says, if anyone sins, it is one's desire that leads him astray. So don't blame your physical body, right? It is our thoughts that determine what the body does. 
And importantly, as I preached before, we need to understand that our flesh, our so-called, our old thinking, has been crucified with Jesus on the cross. We need to count ourselves dead to sin. Sorry to keep using this illustration, but a dead body, a corpse, cannot respond to any external stimuli. No matter what I do to the corpse, the corpse is not going to wake up. In the same way, Jesus says, the Word of God says, if we are dead to sin, then nothing can touch us. Sin can never touch us. The battle then is not in the flesh, but in our minds, our desires. Do we consider ourselves dead to sin or not? Or are we continuing to give an excuse for our sin? One common excuse I think Christians often think is to quote this verse, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's a wrong application altogether. Number one, the disciples were not filled with the Holy Spirit. They did not have the Holy Spirit of God when they fell asleep with Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's the most important distinction. They did not have the Holy Spirit in them. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Right? So it was a particular situation. Secondly, it's a particular situation that they were in. We are in a completely different circumstance and we have the Holy Spirit in us. So we should stop giving ourselves any excuse. I preach at length about this privilege of us that who are born of God to stop sinning. It's my first sermon in this whole sermon series. It's on our church website. If you need to, go and review it. Coming back to this point of perfection, Wesley quotes Jesus, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Same word used there, Thaleos. There, Wesley effectively is saying, what's the point of Jesus asking us to be perfect if it cannot be done? Why would Jesus give us a command and yet not enable us to do it just to make us feel guilty? What kind of God is that? Go and do this, but actually you cannot do it. What kind of parent does that? Go and do something that cannot be done. No, right? Every command of God, Wesley says, is in itself, is in itself given the grace of God that you are enabled by God's grace and God's spirit to fulfill it. So to summarize all that I've said so far, I know it's a lot. Go back and review it uh, on the website and stuff like that. Not only must we grow in Christian maturity, if you forget every, all the details, just remember this. Not only must we grow in Christian maturity or perfection, it is completely possible to do so by God's grace. Not human effort, but God's grace. Simply dwelling in the Word of God, praying, being with God's people, growing in holiness, all these are possible with the means of grace that God has given to us. So not only must we grow, otherwise we'll be backsliding. Secondly, it is possible to do so by God's grace. Think about it. Is sin greater or grace greater? If you ever think that you cannot stop sinning, that means you are nullifying the grace of God. And how can the grace of God ever be lower than the sin, the power of sin? We need to renew our minds. Stop giving ourselves excuses for our sin. Rely on the grace of God to overcome the sins in our lives. As I bring this sermon to a close, so I want to end off by quoting John Wesley's uh, sermon to his opponents verbatim. Because they had many questions, he, in the end he gave this long series of uh, rhetorical questions to his opponents. So let me quote him here. Now permit me to ask, Wesley says, Why are you so angry with those who have professed to have attained this Christian perfection? 
Now in context, in those days, they really have the experience of Christian perfection, a bit like our baptism of the Holy Spirit kind of thing. You feel that, wow, when God's Spirit fills you, you just have so much love for God. So there were testimonies happening in the societies. People were telling people, I experienced God. God made me feel perfect love for Him. So there were people who experienced this. And so, and the opponents, of course, criticized them. How can you say that you're perfected? So Wesley says, why are you so angry with those who have professed to have attained this? And so mad against Christian perfection, against the most glorious gift which God ever gave to the children of man upon earth. What rational objection can you have to the loving the Lord your God with all your heart? Why should you have any aversion to it? Why should you be afraid of it? Would it do you any hurt? Would it lessen your happiness either in this world or the world to come? Why should you be unwilling that others should give them their, give him his, their whole heart? Or, why should, or that they should love their neighbors as themselves? Why are you so averse to having in you the whole mind which was in Christ Jesus? All the affections, all the tempers and dispositions which are in Him while He dwelt among men. Why should you be afraid of this? Would it be any worse for you were God to work in you this very hour all the mind that was in Him? If not, why should you hinder others from seeking this blessing or be displeased at those who think they have attained it? Is anything more lovely? Why are you averse to having the whole fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, gentleness, fidelity, goodness, temperance? Why should you be afraid of having all this planted in your inmost soul? As against these things, there is no law. This is uh, Galatians 5. So there cannot be any reasonable objection. Surely nothing is more desirable than all these tempers should take root in your heart, yes, in the hearts of all that name the name of Christ, and yes, of all the inhabitants of the earth as well. Allow me to ask one more question. Why should any man of reason and religion be either afraid of or averse to salvation from all sin? Is not sin the greatest evil on this side hell? And if so, does it not naturally follow that an entire deliverance from it is one of the greatest blessings on this side heaven? How earnestly then should it be prayed for by all the children of God? If sin is the greatest problem, salvation from sin, which is what Jesus came to do for, is the greatest blessing and we should earnestly pray for it because it is by the grace of God. Wesley says sin is a voluntary transgression of a known law, law, right? So he say, continues, Are you averse to being delivered from this? Are you afraid of such a deliverance? In God's name then, why are you so fond of sin? <laughs> Do you still want to continue sinning? What good has sin ever done to you? Either in this world or in the world to come. And why are you so violent against those who hope for our deliverance from it? Have patience with us. If we are in error, yes, suffer us to enjoy our error. If we should not attain it, the very expectation of this deliverance gives us present comfort. Yeah, administer strength to resist those enemies which we expect to conquer. Right? Even if we are wrong in our interpretation of the Bible and we expect to be holy, at least we have a hope rather than being defeated as Christians. Make sense? So be not angry, he tells his opponents, at those who are happy in their mistake. Because either, otherwise, whether their opinion be right or wrong, their temper, your temper is undeniably sinful. Bear then with us as we do with you and see whether the Lord will not deliver us, whether he is not able and willing to save them to the uttermost that come unto God through him. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Is it possible to be free from sin or not? The answer is yes, by the grace of God. We are not sinless. That's why we need Jesus in the first place. But now that we are born again, by Wesley's definition, it is possible not to commit conscious sin. 
we have the Spirit of God that enables us to say no to temptations because we consider ourselves dead to sin. Previously, we were in sin, but now we are set free. Everything in Scripture is crystal clear. It's black and white here. Either you are set free from sin or not. There is no middle ground. And what Wesley is saying is nothing new, actually. But a lot of us, because of our own lives and our realities, we lower the word of God to our standard. and We give ourselves excuses for our sin when that should not be the case. We should be holy as God is holy. And we should be making a difference in the world the way Jesus made a difference in this world. All the aspects of perfection I already said in this sermon. We need to renew our minds. We are not sinless. That's why we came to Jesus in the first place. But now that we are in Jesus, we should have a different attitude. If you don't think perfection is the way, but at least you should be thinking, I should be sinning less and less and less and less and less, tending towards zero from an engineering graph, math point of view. Tending towards zero. That should be our expectation. Not leaving with uh, half past six. Ah, okay, like, if I can, I'll do my best. That's the wrong expectation. We are called to be a holy people. So family, friends, I know it's a tough message, but this is a very, very important message. As true Methodists and Christians, actually Wesley, when he was asked, who are the Methodists? His answer was, they are Christians. <laughs> and then he gave the same definition, love God, love people, holy, have the mind of Christ. Really, the Methodists are not special. We are simply believers in the word of God. As Pastor Melvin likes to say in his short phrase, you know, this is who we are and this is what we do. We are Methodists, what we do, moving on toward perfection. We are Christians, this is what we do, we move on toward perfection. The, the Lord will help us when we renew our minds to live according to his word. Let's pray. Father, I know that, Lord, you have given us a very precious word. Forgive us as Methodists that we have neglected what our founder, John Wesley, preached. And we have lost sight of what it means to be called to be holy. Father, we ask that you do a work of renewal and revival among the Methodists here in Singapore again. Let it begin with us here in this church. Lord, I'm excited in my spirit. I believe greater things are to come. But Lord, we need a holy people. You are looking for a holy people. So Father, I pray that today's words will not go to waste, will not fall on the ground and the devil will come and steal it away. No, I pray against that right now in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for open hearts, that Lord, this word will sink deep into our hearts, that we recognize that with you, with the Holy Spirit, all things are possible. And you call us to be a holy people. So Lord, help us to live according to this word. Enable us to remember that we are dead to sin, so we can say no to temptations the way Jesus did. Give us this hunger for the word of God. Give us this hunger for the Spirit of God. Do a great work in our lives. Lord, we cannot do this without you. We need you. And it will ask to change our minds to live according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.